thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Helen Scales. Hello, Helen. Hello. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, coming up, a new method of vaccination that promises to be painless, which should be good for anyone who's needle-phobic. Also, how adding lithium to drinking water could cut the suicide rate. Sounds intriguing. We wonder if Japanese scientists have got their facts right on that one. Also, birds and other animals that bob to the beat. Yes, it's official. Certain animals can dance in time to music. But which ones? And what do they dance to? And we'll also be looking at the swine flu situation in Mexico. What is the genetic analysis of this H1N1 strain actually telling us? That's all on the way, Helen. Thanks, Chris. And also this week, we're looking into the workings of a jet engine and finding out how scientists make materials capable of handling the huge loads that these engines have to take. We'll also be looking at a way to make lorries much safer. Engineers here in Cambridge have designed a steering system that should stop the back wheels of an articulated lorry from cutting corners. And I tell you, that's really good news if you're a pedestrian or, like me, a cyclist. So a really good show in store for you this week. Thank you very much, Helen. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientist, the email address for the programme is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Good news this week for anyone that is needle-phobic and also at a time when we're looking for ways to combat the flu, particularly with the threat of a pandemic perhaps lurking in Mexico and now perhaps all around the world. We'll find out shortly. But scientists at Emory University, this is Richard Compans and his colleagues, have come up with a clever new way to make injections both painless but also much more practical. This is what they call a micro-array of needles. This is a system where they have a series of very tiny needles. They're each less than a tenth of the diameter of a normal hypodermic needle, less than a millimetre long too. And they have these arranged in a line on a special plastic holder. The surfaces of these needles are covered with an antigen, in other words, the substance that you want the body to react to. And rather than having to be injected intramuscularly, like most existing injections are, these ones just go into the skin. And they make use of the fact that the skin is very richly supplied in cells called antigen present cells. These include cells like Langerhans cells and dendritic cells. And what these cells do is they soak up the antigen that's put into the surface layers of the skin by these tiny needles, and they then present that antigen to the immune system, triggering an immune response. And in tests on mice, what they were able to show is that it produced an equivalent amount of antibody production in an equivalent amount of time as a normal intramuscular injection. And also what they say is that when they gave animals a dose of flu which would normally prove fatal, animals that have been treated with a flu vaccine delivered via this method all survived. The paper that they've brought out is published this week in the journal PNAS, and they make some important points in there. They point out that this system, because the virus on the injection system is dried out, these things don't need refrigeration, which makes them ideal for sending through the post... That could help elderly people who can't get to the GP surgery. It could also help people in third world countries where refrigeration's a problem. And because they don't involve big needles, they're less terrifying for people with needle needle phobias. But also, there's a big benefit, which is that they don't need any expertise to use them. So you could do this at home, which I think is a terrific uh, step forward if it works. Is it likely to be kind of cheap and available in that sense, uh, not, not much more expensive than normal? Absolutely. Yeah. uses exactly the same antigens that we would normally put into an intramuscular injection, except you put them onto the needles and dry them out. Sounds great. Well, also this week, scientists in Japan have found a very strong link between higher levels of the metal lithium in tap water and a reduced incidence of suicide. Well, Hirochika Ogami and Takeshi Terao from Oita University in Japan led a team who measured the levels of lithium in tap water in 18 municipalities of a region 
region of Japan called Oitra. And uh, they compared that against the rates of suicide among the million people who live there. And the study published in the British Journal of Psychiatry shows that between 2002 and 2006, in areas where lithium levels were highest, the suicide rates were significantly lower. Well... People with serious mood disorders like bipolar disorder are already treated with high doses of lithium and that helps to stabilise their moods. Um, But this study shows that at much lower doses, perhaps accumulating in the brain over time, this may also have a really positive impact on people's moods, including um, suicide rates. Um, The amount of lithium in drinking water ranged from 0.7 to 59 micrograms per litre and the study clearly raises the issue of whether we should be thinking about adding lithium on the large scales um, to drinking water. And it's a sort of mass and involuntary delivery of medicine like that that's something that's no doubt going to raise a lot of hot debate about whether that's the kind of thing we should be doing. But the authors really emphasise that it's very early days. We need much more study to understand more about the effects lithium can have putting it in drinking water, especially since we already know it can have quite nasty side effects and can be quite toxic at higher doses. Do we have any clues as to how lithium actually works? Because one big enigma in psychiatry for many years is when you give people lithium for things like bipolar disorder and also very bad depression, it makes people better, but scientists have always said they don't really know why. Yes, absolutely, and we are still fairly left in the dark um, about that, but there has been a study also recently by Professor Adrian Harwood of Cardiff School of Biosciences in the UK, and they've actually shed some light on that whole issue of what exactly is going on when lithium is taken and what effect it's having in the brain. And um, they've published a study in the journal Disease Models and Mechanisms and they've actually seemed to have pinpointed a likely pathway that lithium may act through because they took laboratory um, tests on cells, um, cell cultures, and they found that it seems to be that lithium is inhibiting an enzyme called inositol monophosphatase, and that's IMPase. And um, uh, it seems that actually that reduces the production of another molecule called PIP3 and that plays an important role in controlling brain cell signalling. Now, a certain variant of the gene of um, IMPAs um, has previously been linked to people with bipolar disorder and it could be that lithium is somehow counteracting changes in that gene and having that effect um, somehow on on cell signalling processes. But the precise mechanism remained to be discovered but at least now we seem to have a light shone as to where we should be looking in the future for further studies. So fluoride for good teeth and lithium for a good mood. Thank you Helen. Also this week, scientists in America, this is Michael Check and his colleagues at the University of Massachusetts, have shown that they can switch off individual genes in certain parts of the body's immune system using yeast. Now, this is rather surprising. The yeast isn't actually alive when they do this. Uh, it's a very clever paper written in Nature this week. What they do is take yeast cells, which are about one five hundredth of a millimetre across, and if they bath them in acid and then in some solvents, what happens is all of the contents of the yeast cells are stripped away and you're left with this outer husk, which is made of a sugary molecule, which is called beta-1,3-D-glucan. And this is very much loved by macrophages, which are cells that eat things. They're part of your immune system that engulf things and break them down. They're attracted to this particular chemical. And what the researchers have found is that they can fill these empty yeast husks with other chemicals, including putting in bits of genetic material. So what they did was to fill them up with structures called interfering RNAs. These are very short pieces of genetic material, which are the genetic mirror image of certain genes in the body. And if you add these mirror images to a cell, what the mirror image does is it hunts down its own gene product, the complementary mirror image to itself, and causes it to be broken down. So it effectively switches that gene off. So by feeding mice these yeast husks that were full of these uh, interfering RNAs, the researchers were able to shut off a couple of genes in the mice. They targeted one gene called TNF-alpha, which is very important in inflammation, and another gene linked to TNF-alpha, another one called MAP4K4. And what they were able to demonstrate is not only when fed these particles by mouth would these genes shut off in the macrophages in these mice, but also they could give the mice a dose of something called LPS. This is lipopolysaccharide. This is a a chemical which comes from the surfaces of bacteria and is linked to septic shock. So when someone gets septicemia, they're producing a lot of this chemical, and this is what causes people to get low blood pressure and sometimes, unfortunately, to die. Well, in mice that were given these injections with LPS, but which had previously been treated with these particles... Uh, more than half the mice survived. So this suggests that this could be a very clever way to to selectively turn off certain genes in the immune system, and that could be useful for treating chronic inflammatory disorders like rheumatoid arthritis. 
Sounds like very good news indeed. Well, finally this week, um, we have some news that it isn't just people who enjoy moving and dancing to their favourite tunes, but birds, it turns out, also like to boogie. Anirudh Patel from the Neurosciences Institute in San Diego first saw Snowball, the sulphur-crested cockatoo, on a video clip on the website YouTube, bobbing his head and tapping his feet in time to a pop song. Well, to find out if Snowball really was feeling the beat, Patel led a team who filmed Snowball dancing to everybody by the Backstreet Boys, which apparently is one of Snowball's favourite tunes. Can you give us a little rendition to remind us how it goes? I'm sorry, I actually don't know that song at all. Do you know it, Chris? I think it's the one that goes Everybody... Yeah, that one. Okay. Am I right, guys? Uh, Everyone's everyone's kind of looking shocked. (laughs) Yeah, they're nodding. Yeah, I think you should carry on. That was wonderful. I don't know anymore. (laughs) I can't remember. (laughs) Anyway, so there we go. Backstreet Boys was the tune they played to Snowball. And um, then they measured, the team measured how closely his head bobs and feet taps synchronised with the main beats of the music. And they found that rather than randomly bobbing around with the music when the music is playing and occasionally falling in time with the rhythm, Snowball actually kept time with the beat, just as well as human volunteers did. He obviously hasn't been to a nightclub in Cambridge then. Wouldn't fit in at all there, would he? (laughs) Oh dear, it's been a while since I've been to one of those and certainly haven't seen any parrots dancing on the dance floor, but maybe we should take them along. But what does this prove, Helen? Basically, what um, this is showing that uh, it's supporting a theory um, of how entrainment to music, otherwise known as dancing, arose. And it seems that it could have uh, been uh, because our brains are actually wired up to be able to hear sounds and mimic them, something that both humans and parrots can do. If you've kept a parrot, you'll know that they like to mimic you and uh, try and sound like you and say the words, Polly, have a cracker and all that. Well, vocal mimicry actually requires a close link between auditory and motor circuits in the brain. You have to hear something and then respond to it with a movement. And a similar thing allows us to respond to music and and dance to it, essentially. Now, another team of scientists did a similar thing, also in the journal Current Biology. These two papers appeared in this week. Then they also studied um, a couple of other parrots and showed a very similar thing. But they also looked through YouTube, uh, all the clips there of uh, clips that apparently are of animals dancing, and um, they did the similar video analysis to see if they were actually dancing to the beat or just kind of moving around randomly or being forced to move by their owners. And they found that the only ones, the only animals that were truly dancing in time to the beat were vocal mimics. And that included 17 species of parrot and an elephant, which is rather wonderful. And really, this is just um, helping us to understand a little bit more about how being able to dance and enjoy music might have arisen. And it really is the first step towards that. But I like the idea of we should go out and do some more tests on other vocal mimics. I want to be able to, I want to know if hummingbirds, songbirds, dolphins, seals and bats, who are all vocal mimics, I want to know if they can dance too. I think that would be a rather wonderful study to be involved in. I rather like the idea of writing a grant application saying I'm going to download 3,000 clips from YouTube of animals dancing in order to see whether they can dance in time to music. I wonder what the people refereeing that grant actually thought of it. Thank you, Helen, for that. Now, also in the news this week, how could you have missed it? The fact that we are perhaps on the verge of a pandemic, or perhaps not. People are very worried about this swine influenza from Mexico, but surely more answers than any can be obtained by sequencing the virus and understanding what its genetic story is. And joining us now from Imperial College in London is Professor Wendy Barclay. She's an influenza virologist. Hello, Wendy. Hello. Good to have you with us on The Naked Scientist. Tell us a bit about where we stand with this. What have we learned so far from looking at the genetics of this virus? Well, over the uh, course of last weekend and then into last week, uh, most of the genes of a number of different isolates of this virus have been sequenced, and that information has been shared by scientists over the web, which allows us all um, to have a look and, and, and see whether or not this virus has got any of the particular traits that we would associate with, for example, um, a highly pathogenic virus, so that we can begin to predict what to expect as this virus uh, spreads into people um, and what sort of uh, action we should be preparing ourselves to take. What about where it came from, Wendy? What does the sequence actually tell us about its origins? Mm, very interesting. Um, Swine influenza is is quite a complicated beast, it turns out. Uh, your, your listeners may or may not know, but influenza virus has its genome split into eight discrete pieces known as the segments of RNA. And in general, each one of those pieces encodes um, one protein, although some of them encode two. So there's about 11 proteins spread on eight pieces. And you could think of these a little bit like chromosomes, if you like. They're, they're discrete physical entities that encode genes. Now, we can tell by looking at those segments of RNA 
uh, that uh, way, way back, some of those RNA segments were once segments of viruses that were circulating in humans uh, and also in birds and in pigs. So what happened with swine influenza back in the late 1990s is that um, a particular strain appeared in the Americas which contained gene segments from at least three different viruses from three different types of hosts, humans, um, birds and pigs. And this constellation has been known as the triple reassortant genome or TRIG. Um, that seemed to be a very happy virus, if you like. It was spreading around the pigs in the Americas very well, shuffling a little bit on the outside, its antigenic properties, but, but the basic backbone of the virus seemed pretty fit. Now, what's now happened is that that pig virus from the Americas has somehow muddled up with another pig virus, which until recently was really only known about in Europe. And the two of those have mixed together, one would imagine, in a pig, which perhaps became co-infected by the two viruses and have produced this final Mexican flu. Why do you <laughs> think that this interesting combination has now suddenly decided it's going to jump out of the pig and start infecting humans? Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a super question and obviously something that we, we need to understand and lots of people are having a think about. The, the trig um, genome that was existing in the Americas since the 1990s didn't do that until now. The insides of the virus have stayed more or less the same. So the best bet is that it's the particular combination of the outside genes, the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase, on the trig backbone, which has allowed this jumping to occur. But it's early days to say that yet, and obviously that's just based on sequence gazing. What we're going to need to do now is some real biology to try and understand why those surface genes, the H and the N, the particular ones, uh, have sort of come together and, and allowed this jump to happen. Thank you, Randy, for explaining that. Could, could you just finally tell us what are the big priorities for virologists to, to now do in relation to this pandemic virus or potential pandemic virus? What will the big questions that people are now beginning to ask be? Yes, well, I mean, obviously, from a practical point of view, um, we've got to know, is this virus susceptible to antiviral drugs and will it remain so? So the good news at the moment from the gene gazing is that, yes, it is at the moment, as far as we can see. And of course, we know that people are responding well to Tamiflu treatment. But we also know that single point mutations can render such viruses resistant. So we need to know, for example, will this particular virus tolerate those mutations or will there be um, a sort of cost to them, which would mean that, that, that any resistant viruses that emerged uh, were, were unfit or no longer transmissible between people? Uh, another key question is whether or not vaccines uh, that we have already confer any sort of immunity. To be honest, uh, there's so little uh, sequence uh, homology between human strains that we've been vaccinating people against, and this one, that's unlikely, but we certainly need to check it out to be sure. And finally, the question uh, that is sort of a big unknown is whether or not this virus is going to change any more than it has already. Um, we know it's managed to jump into people, uh, but is it going to stay the same as it is now, or is there a chance that it could mutate? And if it did mutate, could it get any more virulent, um, or is it more likely to go the other way and sort of adapt better to its host and, and live in harmony? Well, let's hope not. Thank you very much. That's Wendy Barclay, who is Professor of Flu Biology, Virology at Imperial College in London. Helen. Well, it's not just science that we get from a sequence of DNA, but we can also use it to generate music. Have a listen to this. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, we've got Stefan Zielinski with us. He created this music using the sequence of amino acids in a protein in the swine flu virus called hemagglutinin, and that's the one that causes red blood cells to collect together. So, Stefan, um, why make music from a virus that might trigger the next big pandemic? Well, you know, I was just sitting around uh, feeding my dancing bat some high lithium tap water, and... Uh, a buddy of mine from the uh, Mayo Clinic sent out uh, the sequence that they had just come up with for this particular variation of hemagglutinin. And I was wondering if I could translate it into something that I would have an easier time understanding and maybe hear the functional groups. You know, if I could translate it into music, then perhaps uh, a symphony has movements. I was hoping that I could hear a division within the music. 
between the functional groups. And I couldn't, but maybe other people can. So tell us, how did you go about making this piece of music? Well, I'm going to cheat and answer a closely related question, which is when you listen to the music, what parts of what you're hearing came from me and what parts really came from the virus? Uh, viruses obviously don't share a lot of characteristics with music. They don't have a key, they don't have a time signature, and they don't have orchestration. So all of that stuff is things that I came up with and you know, put, into the, put into the piece itself. What really came from the virus in all of this is the melody. Now, proteins are made out of 20 amino acids in life as we know it. Uh, and these 20 amino acids come in various classifications. You know, a specific amino acid might be uh, hydrophobic or it might not be. It might be aliphatic, it might be aromatic. What I did was I took the amino acids and divided them up by chemical category and assigned each category to an instrument. So for instance, the piano got nine of the amino acids. Uh, from there, I sorted them by van der Waal volume, which is approximately how big the amino acid, how much space it takes up. Uh, and then by analogy to basic acoustics, I assigned the large ones to relatively low notes and the small ones to relatively high notes. So when you listen to the music, the interplay between the various instruments and the specific melody that's picked out, that's all come from the virus. Excellent. Well, we're certainly enjoying listening to it, and it's quite a new experience for us here. So thanks, Stefan. That was Stefan Zielinski, and he's taken the sequence of amino acids in the swine flu virus and used it to sequence some music. You can find out more about him online at stefan-zielinski.com. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Helen Scales. We're talking this week about the science of engineering and material science. We'll be getting inside a jet engine very shortly. But first... There's also another way you can listen to The Naked Scientists and you can chat about the science in a show with like-minded folks at the same time. And that's in the virtual world of Second Life. We're live at 10am Second Life uh, every Sunday. So if you want to join us, sign up for Second Life, visit the Scilands and then search for The Naked Scientists. You can drop by our glorious mansion, stretch out on one of our sun loungers and listen to the show. Also, if you've got any questions for The Naked Scientist, the address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. We've heard from Troy McLuhan, who's listening to us in Second Life, and he says he wonders if crows can dance. I'm not sure. We'll have to find out. Now, this week we are looking at the science of engineering, and uh, we'll go into the future of transport in just a second. But in kitchen science, Ben and Dave are looking back at a very ancient breakthrough in transport, and that's the wheel. For this week's Kitchen Science, we're finding out about one of the very basic principles that you rely on every time you get in a car, on a bus, or ride a bike, or even every time you wheel your chair around the office. Now, Dave, what are we finding out about today? Well, I thought we'd have a look at a piece of technology which dates back about 7,000 years ago in Iraq, the wheel. So this really is one of the most basic principles that we rely on for the vast majority of our transport today. Yeah, that's right. And I thought I'd have a look at how it actually works, because it's slightly more subtle than you'd think. Doesn't it just roll round? Isn't that really the point? Yeah, that is a lot of what it is. But what a wheel is really about is reducing friction. Now, there's something which predated the wheel, which is a wonderful way of reducing friction. It's called the roller. Is this like something you flatten your garden lawn out with? Approximately. What I've got down here is just two bottles and a board, and I'm going to put the board on top of the bottles. OK, so you're just literally putting a wooden board on top of two bottles which are lined up with each other. It looks kind of like a really, really basic skateboard. Something along those lines. Now, Ben, if you'd like to push the board along... Well, I'm not going to put my weight in it, as it'll crush your bottles, but if I gently push the board, it moves very, very easily. Until it falls off one of the bottles, it moves forwards really easily. That's right. Rollers are a wonderful, simple piece of technology. They can reduce friction immensely. In fact, in theory, if everything was flat, there would be essentially no friction there at all. The problem is, as you just found, eventually you fall off the end of the rollers. <laughs> so this could be good ways to move around huge, heavy things, like huge blocks of stone. If you put, instead of bottles, maybe if you put tree trunks or anything that was whittled down to be cylindrical. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's thought that a lot of the ancients moved a lot of really big stone monuments about with rollers. 
Rollers are great as long as you've got someone to keep taking the rollers out from one end and putting them in the other end, which isn't ideal for anything faster than a great big megalith. Okay, so I can see that these are a very good way of reducing friction and moving things around. But really, with wheels, they're, they're kind of strapped onto the bottom, aren't they? Rather than moving along the top of them, they're moving along with you. That's right. Wheels are attached to an axle. And for this week's Kitchen Science, I'm going to be looking at the axle in a wheel. And to do this, I can see that you've built two cars out of corrugated cardboard. Yeah, that's right. I've made one of them with um, wheels using toilet rolls as axles. So these are enormous axles. They take up most of the diameter of the wheel. And to compare that to, I've made another car, which still uses toilet rolls as axles, but I've taken the toilet rolls and rolled them up much, much smaller, maybe about 8 millimetres in diameter. Okay, so these axles look roughly the size of a pencil or so. So basically, your two different cars are very similar, except they have very different sized axles. That's right. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a bit of weight on them, give them some load, then put them on a piece of wood and then change the angle of that piece of wood until eventually they start moving and see which one moves first. OK, but we're keeping everything except the size of that axle the same. So you put the same weight on each of your two cars and then see what angle they start to roll at. That's right. And just to compare it to as a control, I've just got a piece of cardboard, which I'm going to put the load on and see how, what angle that moves at. So that one's got no wheels at all. That's right. Later on in the show, we're going to test it out. We're going to find out which one rolls down on the shallowest slope. In other words, which axle, the enormous axle or the tiny axle, actually gets moving first. So let us know what you think, and we'll be back later in the show. It's amazing to think that someone actually had to invent the wheel, isn't it? But which one of Dave's cardboard cars do you think will actually start moving first? We've got one with tiny axles, one with massive axles that take up most of the wheel, and one that's nothing more than a cardboard sled. And you can see the pictures, actually. They're on our website now at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science, which might help to give you a clue. If you have any ideas, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Well, planes, trains and automobiles have been consistently evolving since they were first designed and it's certainly going strong still today. And scientists and engineers are finding new ways to make transport more efficient, more renewable and safer. Well, we're now joined by Dr Howard Stone from Cambridge University's Department of Material Sciences and Metallurgy and he's looking for ways to get the most out of metals as we use them to make jet engine blades so we can make them longer lasting, safer and more efficient. Hello, Howard. Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. That's right. Um, first off, what are, what are the problems facing by, faced by jet engines that they have to overcome in order to work to get these huge metal boxes up into the air? Well, um, to actually get a gas turbine engine to, uh, to work and to get the airplane in the air, you actually have to uh, suck the air in the front, compress it, uh, mix it with fuel, um, and then pass it out of the back over a series of turbine blades, which, if you like, extract the energy from the hot gases. Um, so there are a great many engineering challenges in that. I take uh, it we're talking very, very hot temperatures here. We're talking very, very high temperatures. And certainly one of the great challenges we've got is to, to create materials which are capable of surviving the environments um, in the very core of the jet engines. Uh, and that's really the focus on the work we, we do. You've got, I have to say, it's very exciting, you've got a bit of a jet engine with you in the studio. It uh, doesn't look... Well, I certainly wouldn't recognise it as a piece from a jet engine. What have you got there in front of you? I have one of the uh, turbine blades. Um, so I describe it for your, to your listeners as being about the size of a couple of fingers and shaped roughly like a little wing. Um, and really, this is the little component which extracts a lot of the um, energy from the hot gases that are come out of the combustor in the engine and therefore provide a lot of the power for the engine to go forward. And uh, what's it made out of? How is, how is engineering that material it's made of helping to make it work and do, do what it needs to do? Well, these things work in an extremely demanding environment. I mean, the gas stream temperatures are very, very hot. Um, and as a result, we actually have to have them out of very special materials. And the material I'm holding here at the moment is known as a nickel-based superalloy, a uh, very apt name for it, as it works under conditions that most materials just really wouldn't survive. What's, what makes it, what's, what's a superalloy as opposed to just an alloy? Um, it's one that's very capable of working at conditions that are OK. And, and how demanding. hot are we actually talking about? Oh, we, we, well, actually, the gas stream temperatures these things are required to work in are pretty close to or exceed their, their melting temperatures. So, so they, they should survive. actually melt if they were... Well, they survive by some very complicated cooling passages and uh, film cooling, ceramic coatings and so forth. Um, to give you an analogy, uh, I've, uh, it's, it's equivalent to 
having an ice cube in a in an oven and actually keeping the ice cube uh, as a as a nice solid chunk of ice rather than a piece of liquid water in the bottom of your oven. So by engineering that, you can you could essentially keep. Uh, an ice cube not melting in the middle of an oven just by making it cool. That's a, that that's a lovely down. analogy. Yes. That's okay. Yes. Wonderful. And and so and that particular piece you've got there that is that's involved in in the very core of the jet where Absolutely. the fuel is being burnt and that's where the thrust of the engine begins. Is that right? That, that's right. That's that. You put your finger on it perfectly there. So this is the thing that extracts the energy from the the hot gases that turns the big fan at the front or, or turns the various other parts of the engine, um, which drives you through the sky. Yes. And so that presumably has to move very fast as well. It does, and it's spinning around at thousands of revolutions a minute, which is the equivalent of having hanging the weight of a small car off each one of these little turbine blades. Off each one of those? Off each little blade, which is literally, as I said, no more than probably the size of a couple of And how many of those would you get inside one jet engine? Quite a few. Quite a few. <laughs> it's certainly quite a small piece, and last time I was on a plane, um, the engine looked like it was pretty huge. So, well, Yes, indeed, indeed. And so how do you work to make that material do what it has to do? Well, we're really trying to make sure that um, the, the composition of the alloy is, is optimised so that it's stable, it can survive under these very high temperatures. And one of the most interesting developments is that these things are actually made of single crystals. Um, it's one of the few examples you'll find in an engineering application where an entire component of this sort of size is actually a single crystal. Most um, things we're used to in the world around us, the, the steel in our cars, our cutlery and the like, are made up of many little individual crystals. Much so you like grow a, one crystal in, in the laboratory almost? Well, it's very carefully grown to produce one beautiful single crystal. And what does that do? How does that work? And that that work helps make sure that it survives the very high temperatures and has the best creep resistance it possibly can. So it, it doesn't elongate too much. It doesn't change tremendous shape, heats. And right. tremendous stresses. I see. And so uh, and I, I take it that the reason that we've got to make all these um, improvements in efficiency of these materials is because we're, we're worried about um, air flights increasing in numbers and the amount of emissions and so on. And is this really going to help us make flying more efficient and, and use less fuel and all those sort of things that we're concerned about at the moment? That's the idea, yes. Um, I certainly know that the increase in passenger numbers are... Um, uh, the government's forecast is something of the order of uh, uh, 495 million passengers by um, 2030, and that was a forecast um, in the 2007 report by the government. Um, and that's quite an increase in the sheer number of people. So we have so to we work out ways in which we more. can... Yeah. If we're flying a lot more, we have to work out ways in which we can make it as efficient as we possibly can. But but material science and engineering is at the core of that. It's really at the beginning of it's how we get It's one of the many those, solutions those or many um, tools in our uh, armoury that we'll have to uh, uh, to pursue Excellent. to try and Excellent. get the most out of these these things we're going to carry on relying on Great. for many years to come. Well, thanks for coming into the studio. That was Dr Howard Stone. He's from Cambridge University and he was telling us all about how the metals that uh, are right in the heart of a jet engine can be made to actually withstand all those incredible performances that they get to get our planes into the air. Well, if you have any questions for Howard or any giant general science questions at all, then get them into chris at thenakerscientist.com. I just point out Howard's brought a lump of jet into the studio. I hope he's going to take it away with him again. I'm joking. Um, we've also got waiting in the wings, of course, Andrew Odoms, who's going to explain to us how he's developed a system which enables him to get lorries to turn around tight corners much better. Thankfully, he hasn't brought a juggernaut with him. I'm very disappointed. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. It's Chris Smith and Helen Scales. We're talking about forms of engineering and how we get things moving better and faster this week. And talking of which, Formula One racing. Now, it's not quite a form of transport... It is very fast, though, and inevitably it does involve huge amounts of science and technology. If it doesn't have science and technology at its heart, cars won't be going faster and they won't be winning races. So we sent Mira Senthalingam to find out about this field of fast cars and revving engines and how that can lead to improvements in other aspects of transport. Formula One is the highest class of motorsport in the world. It's a fast-paced world where cars can race at up to 220 miles per hour in certain conditions. But for these cars to reach these speeds and drive smoothly and safely, they need to be at the forefront of science and technology. But did you know that the science behind Formula One is actually spilling out into other fields and even everyday life? So this week, I'm at the Science Museum's Fast Forward exhibition, which is showcasing just some of the products that have been influenced by Formula One science, 
I've got one of these products in front of me now, and it's the Factor 001 bike by Baru F1 Systems. It has an electronic monitoring system fitted into it. And John Bailey, the managing director of Baru F1 Systems, is here with me now. So, John, as F1 drivers are driving around, everything about them, like the car's movement, speed, the driver's heart rate, it's all monitored, and you're now enabling this to happen to a cyclist. Yeah, typically to get the sort of data we're now getting, you'd have to go into a lab and spend a few hours plugged into various machines. But this is enabling you to get it as the cyclist is riding around on their route? Yeah, exactly that. There are sort of three areas that that are measured. One is the the cyclist himself. One is the bike in terms of the power put into the bike, how it's being transferred to the road. And finally, the environmental conditions that those two previous categories are exposed to. And so where would the devices be fitted onto this bike in order to measure this, and how would they measure that? The power measurement's taken from the cranks directly. That's where the power's actually put into the bike. That's done both on the left-hand side and the right-hand side in the forward and rear stroke. We also then have environmental data, which is uh, housed in the head unit. That has several accelerometers, both for the bike and for the rider. Accelerometers measure acceleration, but they also measure lean angle of the bike. There's inclinometers to tell you whether you're going up a hill or down a hill. There's barometric pressure sensors, so if you're at altitude. And then the rider himself, he has a medical-grade measurements of ECG, um, respiration rates, his bodily position relative to the bike, skin temperature and core temperature if he takes a, a tablet. How are those measured? They're measured via a device which is strapped to the rider's chest. And within the strap there are force measurement devices which measure the expansion of his chest cavity um, and the rate of which that expands. And there's also temperature sensors built into the strap. For the professional athletes that we're working with, we have developed some wireless systems which allows coaches to monitor the data live and you know, verbally shout at the rider if they need to. It looks like a regular kind of bike, but moving behind it now, it does look extremely thin. What's it made of? Everything's carbon fibre, um, obviously for weight and strength. It seems to adopt the monocoque system of Formula One racing, which is basically where there's a core body made of this carbon fibre, and then everything is then attached onto it. If you imagine gluing lots of parts together, then their ultimate weakness is where they're glued together. If you've got a solid structure that isn't glued together, but is a one whole moulded single surface, then you, you improve your strength and stiffness. So it seems this monocoque structure in particular is a key design from Formula One racing that's being transferred into other products. And it's not only bikes that it can be transferred onto, but also wheelchairs, more specifically all-terrain wheelchairs. This wheelchair by Trekinetic is also on display here at the Science Museum, and it does look pretty impressive. So I'm going to the Trekinetic base to find out more about it and see it in action. So I'm now at the production facilities of Trekinetic Wheelchairs in Hemel Hempstead, and with me is the managing director, Mike Spindle. So, Mike, we've got one of the K2 all-terrain models in front of us now. It's not very tall, and the wheels are very thick, which I'm obviously assuming it's going to help with the all-terrain aspect of it. I think, without doubt, the main breakthrough of the chair is the fact that it has what we call a monocoque chassis. That means one element, in this case the seat, is made of a super strong carbon fibre. And it is to this that all the components are attached. Like an F1 car, we completely dispense with the framework chassis. And it does look very comfortable. It looks as if it follows the general contours of the body. And so by doing this, it's supporting the right areas. A conventional chair forces your backside into a square shape because they're all of a right-angled construction. So it's natural for us as we were moulding it to try and make it as anatomical as we could. I'm just going to have a seat. The seat feels very much like it's hugging my kind of hip and back area, and I feel very supported. That's right. Basically, your thighs, backside, and sides are supported. Attached to this chair are these large wheels, which are situated at the front of the chair. And, I mean, just pushing it around a bit, it seems like a a good place to actually put the wheels compared to where the wheels are on a traditional one. When those of us that don't use wheelchairs sit in an armchair, our hands or at the front next to our knees, and that's really where the wheel should be. One of the uh, great benefits of this to the user is that for weak users, it's easier to push, but for strong users, they can get up to twice normal speeds. So when we did this and we showed it to a focus group, we noticed that it was really good off-road. And then we discovered through the focus group that the average wheelchair was completely hopeless off-road, and people in wheelchairs didn't go on gravel paths, they didn't go out in the snow, and they just would be limited to tarmac paths. Now, at the back of the chair, you can also change the angle of that the chair is actually sitting in. 
That's right. One of the problems in a wheelchair going down hills is your position in the seat changes. So if you're fine on the horizontal, when you go down a hill, you can be tipped out of the chair, especially with a front-wheel drive design. Um, So we fitted a nitrogen gas shock absorber on the back, which very much like an office chair, by releasing a valve lever, you can change the length of it, which means you can tip the seat backwards and forwards. Now, as well as that, the wheels themselves are sitting at an angle as well, so the top part of the wheel is more inner than the bottom part of it. What benefit does this provide? Well, we found that because the front-wheel drive is just naturally a more efficient propulsion system, that people were getting up to, you know, strong users were getting up to quite high speeds in the chair, and that led to instability off-road. So what we needed was an angled wheel system where the tops of the the wheels are in a position where you can reach them, but where it touches the ground, they are wider apart. And uh, this is called a camber on the wheels but the the real problem with it is is that you've got this super sports chair that's very stable off-road but when you go out in your supermarket you can't get it through a doorway so we introduced quite an innovative system of just by simply turning a shaft you change it from a negative camber to a zero camber and you can get through doorways so we've got a true dual purpose chair it's quite amazing to think that Formula One racing has inspired um, technologies that are going to help people in uh, wheelchairs and also on your bike, on uh, improving your fitness and cycling ability on a rather brilliant type of bicycle. It sounds wonderful. What could be happening next? That was Mike Spindle of Trichinetic Wheelchairs and before that, John Bailey from Beru F1 Systems talking to our own Mira Synthalingham. Thank you, Helen. This is Chris Smith and Helen Skells on The Naked Scientist this week, and we're talking about engineering. We're talking about transport, and this is no exception. Andrew Odoms is with us. He's from the engineering department at Cambridge University, where he's developed a very elegant solution to an age-old problem. Andrew, good evening. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Good to have you with us. Thank you. What was the problem you set out to solve? Well, uh, it's, it's about articulated lorries. Everybody's familiar with them. Um tractor semi-trailers as we call them um the you know normal articulated lorries with three axles at the back on the trailer and a, a tractor with a you know drive axle and a steer axle so it's five axles in all but the front axles of the tractor are obviously steer but none of the others so we wondered what would happen if you steered the trailer axles as well and what benefits you could get to the performance of these vehicles now so what problems do lorry drivers face when trying to handle a lorry with that configuration at the moment uh, well, it, it's twofold. It's firstly at low speed, their manoeuvrability, and then also at high speed, there are problems with these with these vehicles. Um, at low speed, y- you've probably noticed if you come alongside one of these vehicles on a roundabout, on a, especially on a tight roundabout, that as they go round the roundabout, they start to cut in. The the trailer gets they further mount, and further into the, corner, the roundabout. They mount the curb. Yeah, they'll mount the curb. They'll, they'll, they'll cut you up. That's right, they'll, they'll mount a car. I mean, it's, it's not, not the, the driver's, driver's fault. fault. No, uh, exactly. You can't do anything about that. That's an engineering consequence of the way the lorry's set up. Exactly. And exactly. you're saying you can make things better? Well, if you steer the, the rear wheels of the trailer, you can get the rear of the trailer to be further out on the roundabout. Now, uh, the steering systems do exist. Low loaders have used them for a number of years. But the, the sort of uh, strategies people have used, the control strategies they've used to, uh, to control that steering is, is not perfect. It, it emulates having a fixed axle, say, halfway down the vehicle which the trouble with that is that um, you get the opposite problem. When you come into a, a roundabout, the rear of the trailer swings out. And if you're a cyclist next to that trailer, you, you um, get the trailer coming at you unexpectedly. So basically substituting one problem for another. Exactly. So, so what's your solution? So the challenge was to, to come up with a, a cha- uh, system with no compromise, which obviously everybody would love. But um, we've, we've made ours computer-controlled. It's fully active, if you like, um, which means that we can... Uh, avoid tail swing whilst also minimising cutting. You can effectively get the box that's the rear of the of the semi trailer around the corner in the minimum space possible. If you were trying to fit it, you know, if you had it on a piece of paper and you're trying to fit it around the corner, it's the minimum space you can possibly get it around in. Without destroying your patent application, <laughs> how does it work? Uh, you try and make the rear of the trailer follow where the front went. So it, it's well, that sounds logical obvious. Thing so what, to do. What, what does it actually do to do that? Uh, Does the front end know where it's going so it tells the back end and the back yes, end then the, sort of waits a certain amount of time and then makes the adjustment or something? Is that yes, how it works? Yes, broadly that. You, you, watch, you remember the path that the front took in the computer and then it, it recreates it at the rear. How does it do that? Uh, we have Well, we have a range of sensors. It needs to know um, what the articulation angle is between the tractor and the semi-trailer. Um, and not much more than that. It needs to know, know how fast it's going. 
but not much more than that. It's um, you know it's relatively simple to do, but you do need an active system to do it. So would this involve then having to completely overhaul an existing lorry in order to plumb this in? Could you um, retrofit Britain's rolling stock to accommodate your system, or would a lorry have to be designed bespoke with this in mind? You'd have to design it bespoke. Uh, the, you could retrofit them, but at lower sort of performance, you could retrofit them to existing vehicles. But trailers are changed every couple of years anyway, so it's not, you know, it's not something that's going to take ten years to roll out in, into a fleet if you wanted to do it. One problem when when people have tried to to develop things like that in the past, correct me if I'm wrong, but have they not had problems with resonance, where the front of the vehicle does one thing, so the back tries to to copy, but but overcorrects, and mm. then that puts the front off, which then corrects, and that puts the back off, which overcorrects, and before you know it, you're sort of going all over the road, yeah, and it's dangerous. Uh, this is where the sort of the cleverer bits come in. You know, we talked about the relatively simple bits, but especially especially when we're t- going at high speed. I mentioned it briefly. We're, we're uh, we're trying to um, correct the behaviour of the trailer when it's, say, doing a lane change at high speed. This is the, the classic um, thing that you come across on a motorway. The driver's doing something else or not, not paying attention or somebody brakes heavily in front of them, they have to avoid them because they know they can't stop. And you could swap into the adjacent lane, but it, it involves doing a very severe manoeuvre with the front of the uh, tractor semi-trailer. And unfortunately, the dynamics of them mean that the rear does a more severe manoeuvre. Um, which can cause it to roll over. You know that a well, a tractor semi-trailer will roll over before it will skid, in contrast to a car. So how so, do you get around that? Well, the, you can control the steering. You only need a few degrees, but you can control the steering um, carefully enough. You can prevent this problem. So your We've, system is basically a very clever computer program that's watching what the front of the lorry is doing. It's feeding that back through your program. It's speed-sensitive to the back of the lorry, yeah. and it's basically making the appropriate correction to the back of the lorry based on what the road conditions are or the travelling conditions of the of the tractor, the front of the lorry is doing, yes. so that you get an appropriate response at all speeds at all of travel. Speeds, yes, that, that would be our ideal case, yeah. Um, we've, Sounds we've, intriguing. I mean, g- t- taking that forward, because we're a little bit tight for time, mm. j- just to, to sort of look at the applications for this, apart from making roundabouts safer when lorries go around them in towns and things, what else, logically, in the long term, could you do with a system like that? Well, you can, by making a trailer more manoeuvrable and safer, you can you can take a, a larger trailer into a smaller space. You could, for instance, take tractor semi-trailers into the middle of town if you wanted to, if you, you know if you thought that was a, a safe thing to do. You could, you could, without endangering, you know, the Some the people cyclists. do in Cambridge already, well, aren't they? <laughs> Yes, yes. And, well, as a cyclist, I you know, have a vested interest in making them as safe as possible. So, But if you can get a larger trailer into a, a smaller space, you can make it more more efficient um, transport-wise. You know, you don't have to transship between tractor semi-trailers and smaller trailers just to get to the middle of town. So transport can basically become a lot more efficient. A lot more efficient overall, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That's Dr Andrew Odoms. He's from the engineering department at Cambridge University with an intriguing and ingenious way to make lorries much easier to manoeuvre and much safer too. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and still to come, we find out the science behind how the wheel works. And it's not as simple as it being round. Ben and Dave have been testing out three cardboard cars. One has no wheels, one has wheels with a small axle, and the other has wheels with an enormous axle. And we'll find out um, how which of those is going to roll down the shallowest slopes. We'll find out in a few minutes. But first, it's time to invite Diana O'Carroll back into the studio for our question of the week. Hello, Diana. Hello. This week, we've got a plan. Problem. Hello, naked scientists. My name is Christoph Boutelier from Utrecht in the Netherlands. My question is, do we and objects weigh less at night time? I could imagine that the additional gravitational upward pull of the sun during daytime will work to a certain degree against the downward pull of the Earth. So how can celestial bodies affect your body? My name is Mark McCorcoran. I'm a professor of astrophysics at the University of Exeter. Your question is asked the question specifically whether the moon and the sun, the positions of them in the sky, make us weigh more or less. And they do a little bit. Typically, the overall variation due to the positions of the sun and the moon might be as small as about 10 or 15 milligrams, which is less than an aspirin. So it really isn't going to make much difference. You certainly won't feel that difference in weight. 
it's somewhat complicated. People have written in suggesting, well, the moon can pull to one side, depending on where it is. And of course, the moon isn't always out at night. It's out in the daytime just as much as it's out at night, but people don't tend to look. So there's a little effect there, but there are much bigger effects at work. The one that people haven't written about, which is actually quite important for most people, and it has to do with atmospheric pressure. The atmospheric pressure will change from day to day. People know about highs and lows. And a typical change during a night as a high-pressure zone moves into a low-pressure zone might actually change the weight of a person by as much as 6 grams. So not 10 or 15 milligrams, but 6 grams, which is the weight of a pencil, for example. And that's all to do with the buoyancy of the air when the pressure goes up. But the biggest way of losing weight, if you really want to lose weight quickly, is to move the location, move to somewhere nearer the equator where the centrifugal force, or more correctly, the centripetal acceleration of the Earth reduces your weight because the Earth is spinning and at the equator it's spinning the fastest, and also going to a higher altitude. And you can lose as much as three or 400 grams that way, about half a percent of your body weight. So if you really want to lose weight, astronomically, then move to Mexico City near the equator and at high altitude. On the other hand, it's probably not the best place to go to at the moment. So the pull of the moon could counteract the gravity of the Earth and make you a little lighter, relative to the Earth, that is. But it's factors like atmospheric pressure which can really make you lighter or heavier. A UK 10 pence piece weighs just over six grams, so imagine all that extra money you could carry around with you on a low-pressure day. And on our forum, RD said the best time to attend a Weight Watchers meeting would be during a solar eclipse. And Jay Petruccelli added that during the night, the sun can pull the Earth away from you ever so slightly, making you just a little bit lighter. And from lightning now to uh, lightening the load and flying it is next week's question. Hello, I'm Dave from Essex, and this is my question. Can you do aircraft manoeuvres like a loop-the-loop or a barrel roll in Airbus A380s and Boeing 747s. So what moves do you think you would be pulling in a passenger jet? Let us know what you think via email, and that's chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can use the forum of discussion and answers, and that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much. Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. It's a standalone podcast in its own right. You can find it on iTunes, The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Helen Skells. Don't forget that earlier in the programme, Dave and Ben were experimenting with axles of various sizes to try and show you how a wheel works. Now, we heard from uh, Keith Humphreys. He says the larger axle will start first and accelerate faster because of the higher PMI. Troy McLuhan says, I'm guessing the one with the small axle. A smaller axle has a lower moment of inertia, which makes it easy to impart angular acceleration. And then Troy points out, oh, if the weight's the same, then the key difference is the moment of inertia, which for a cylinder rotating about its axis is mass times radius squared. So that means the bigger axle means bigger moment of inertia, and that means slower angular acceleration. What he's saying is the one with the big axles should go slower. Helen. Well, I think it's better be time for us to find out what they actually did get up to. And I should warn you, there's a really, really terrible pun coming up. Welcome back to this week's really exciting kitchen science, <laughs> where we're finding out what is it about the wheel that makes it so good for us moving. Now, Dave, what do we have set up? How are we testing it? OK, I've got three different cars. One of them doesn't have any wheels at all as a control. One of them's got wheels which you'd think of as fairly normal with a small axle and a big wheel. And the third one has wheels where the axle is almost as big as the wheel is itself. And we're going to put these one at a time with exactly the same weight on the top on a bit of wood and tilt the bit of wood and see which one will start rolling at the shallowest angle. Now, what will that actually tell us? Well, as you tip the piece of wood, slowly more and more of the gravity is pulling that car forward and less and less is pulling it down. So eventually the gravity is going to pull it forward enough for it to overcome friction. So the higher the friction, the steeper the slope it'll be able to stay still on. So whichever setup actually has the least friction in the system should start rolling first. That is the theory, yes. OK, well, let's test this out first with what you've called a car, but I think is more like a cardboard sled, really, and we're going to put the same mass on it that we will put on our cars. In fact, the mass we're using is just an empty jam jar. We've placed that on our bit of wood, and Dave has a protractor for measuring the angle at which it starts to fall. So, Dave, if you start lifting, we'll see what angle that starts to slide. What angle did we get to before that actually started to move? 
got to about 25 degrees. So the slope needed to be at 25 degrees for the force of gravity pulling down to overcome the friction that was pressing on the bottom of your cardboard sled. That's right, and that's really quite a steep slope. I wouldn't like to drive down a slope at 25 degrees. But perhaps really good on a sled in the snow. So now let's try your car with enormous axles. So because this one has wheels, instead of just being a sled, I expect it'll go at a much shallower angle. So Dave, let's give this one a go as well. Okay, the wheels definitely worked. They were rolling properly. It wasn't just sliding down. But that still looked quite steep to me. Yeah, it was about 20 degrees, so still a pretty steep slope. But now let's try it with your other car. This is the one with small sort of pencil diameter axles. That looked very shallow. What angle was that, Dave? It's about 8 degrees when it started to move. I mean, you'd hardly got the top end off the ground. Yeah, far, far better. So this has got much, much, much less friction than either of the other two. So it's the same weight on the same bit of wood. They're all made of cardboard, and both of the second two have wheels. So where's the friction going? Well, because we've been using the same materials, the friction between the wheel and the smaller axle should be exactly the same as the friction between the big wheel and the big axle. But it started rolling down at a much smaller slope, which means that it took less downward force to overcome that friction. So surely there's less friction there. This is all to do with leverage. Have you ever opened a door? Yes, I've opened lots and lots of doors. I don't have flunkies to do that for me, Dave. <laughs> well, if we come over to this door over here, I want you to try and open this door in a normal place where you'd push it open. So, OK, I'm just going to push it open by the door handle. It slides open easily and hits the other wall. No trouble there. That's good. Now, instead, I want you to try and open it from very, very close to the hinge. OK, I'm pushing. It is opening, but that takes a lot of effort to do that. And there we go. I've got the door open, but it, I had to push a lot harder, very close to the hinge. Yeah, that's right. To open the door, you need to apply a, a certain force at the hinges. You can either apply that by applying a very, very large force close to the hinge and not moving very far, or by applying a much smaller force and moving it much further where the handle is. So the whole door acts like a lever. Now, what's that got to do with our wheels? Well, if we consider the wheel with a huge axle first... Because both the surface of the axle and the edge of the wheel are about the same distance away from the centre of the rotation, then there's virtually no leverage. In order to make the truck move, you're going to have to push about as hard as a frictional force, which is quite a lot, so it doesn't work very well as a wheel. So the fact that the axle and the actual wheel are quite similar sizes means that you don't get any leverage. I assume this means, therefore, that when you have a smaller axle, the wheel itself acts like a lever. That's right, it acts like quite a big lever. The smaller the axle, the bigger the lever it acts like. So you need to apply less force to the wheel in order to overcome that frictional force. So the truck is slowed down less by that friction. Now, you'd think that the obvious solution then is to use axles as small as you physically can, which is right from the purposes of friction. However, it's not quite so good from the purposes of strength. <laughs> of course, because you don't want your axles to be too thin, because the wheels, as well as making you move, have to support the weight. That's right, and in the last couple of hundred years, engineers have come up with a way of using large axles and getting very low friction. It's actually using that very, very ancient technology, the roller, again. What essentially you do is have a ring of rollers all running round and round and round the wheel, and then they just roll and keep rolling and keep going, because they're going in a circle, they never fall out, and you can keep on rolling with almost no friction. So we've almost come full circle on the history and the science of the wheel. We'll put some pictures and diagrams up of Dave's cardboard cars on the website at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science so you can see and even have a go at this yourself at home. We'll be back with another great experiment next week. Thank you, guys. So, with a small axle on a large wheel, the wheel itself acts like a lever and so it takes less force to overcome the friction. I never thought that wheels could work like a lever. It's amazing, isn't it? You can actually see some pictures of Dave's cardboard cars on our website. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. And the guys have also put some videos there showing how they move. So go and take a look. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Andrew Odoms, Howard Stone, Wendy Berkeley, and Stefan Zelinsky. He was the man who made the amazing flu music. Also, thank you to our wonderful production team, Dave Ansell, Mira Synthalingam, and Ben Valsler. Next week, do join us to find out about the science of clean water and about the alien species that are invading our waterways. If you have any questions or you just want to say hi, the email address chris at thenakedscientist.com. 
The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.